It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Just a note for listeners. This episode contains descriptions of intimate partner violence. When you stop and you look at things and, and you look at... Uh, small parts and elements of societies in different locations, you can find authoritarian tendencies across the vast majority of those groups or those communities or those societies, not just in the government. What does it say about us as humans? Um, I would say that it says that power matters, that everybody is kind of instinctively aware probably of hierarchies and where they fall in them, and some people are more wedded to it than others. But I think... Yeah, the big thing it says is that power matters and anyone who tells you it doesn't probably has a lot of it. <laughs> My name's Hint Hassan and I work as a foreign correspondent for Vice News. In my job, I often report stories about human rights abuses, conflicts and uprisings. Over the last decade we've seen enormous movements happening all over the globe. The Arab Spring, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, recent anti-government protests in Hong Kong, Iraq, France. Movements that are at their core about equity and redistributing power. Because those who have power often abuse it. Of course, this includes heads of state, your Trumps and Modis and Bolsonaros. But if you look closely you'll see that these political personality types and behaviours are everywhere, not just at the top. This is Strongman, a show about power and control. It's moments when things are changing and when people at the bottom of a hierarchy are getting more power that you notice it all of a sudden. Everybody sees the, you know, the water we're swimming in. I reached out to Amanda Taub, who's a columnist for The New York Times, and prior to that, wrote for Vox, because she spends a lot of time looking at authoritarianism and power. You wrote an article mm -hmm. in March 2016, before Trump was even elected, mm -hmm. which was called the rise in authoritarianism, mm -hmm. right? The rise of American authoritarianism. The rise in American yeah. authoritarianism. So um, this actually is something that I've been thinking about and writing about since um, probably late 2015. And I came across this whole line of research into authoritarianism. And it was political psychology research, which means they were looking at the psychology of individual people, not authoritarian leaders. When I think of authoritarianism, I'm thinking somebody 
uh, in government who has control over a population or likes to exert their control over a population. But what I haven't thought, but it makes complete sense, is that authoritarianism can exist everywhere. It's in society and it manifests itself in different ways. Whether it's a strong man or a strong woman uh, in terms of their parenting skills, whether it's a, a strong man in the relationship or in the workplace, it sounds like these episodes of mini dictatorships which mirror what happens uh, politically. Would that, would that be right in thinking? Really? Yeah, I think that there are, um, there are a lot of parallels and the basic reason for that is that there aren't that many different ways that people act. And there aren't that many different ways to control another person. Um, and so whether you're doing it in your own household or whether you're doing it on a country level, there are details that vary, but the ultimate dynamics, the way you convince people to go along with it, they're not that different. Power is at play in every single interaction that happens in our lives. And so, of course, the possibility of abusing power exists at every scale, including intimate relationships. You've spoken about a few examples of authoritarian tendencies. Um, obedience yes. is an example. Give, give me an example. Yeah, so domestic violence is something that I've been reporting a lot on this year and something that I've really noticed is there's a huge difference between what the popular perception of domestic violence is and the way it actually works in abusive relationships. So abusive partners, they tend to have rules for what their partners are allowed to do or say, who they're allowed to talk to, where they can go. They will surveil them, so they read their messages, they insist on having access to their phone, they'll listen into their phone calls, they'll follow them around. So the popular perception is that this is something that happens when there's a kind of a fight, an argument, somebody loses their temper, and there's this kind of explosion. Um, and it's a sort of situational thing in the way of like, I don't know, like a bar fight or something like that. Um, but in fact, abusive relationships are actually all about control, and violence is just one of the mechanisms of that. We know what makes people powerful. Race, money, gender, education, and any number of other factors. But if you want to describe power itself in any further detail, I think you have to talk about these mechanisms of control that Amanda mentions. About what happens when some people have too much power. And what they do to hang on to it. Because the context or scale may change, but the ways people abuse power and attempt to keep others under their control, those mechanisms are strikingly similar. This is true at the level of countries and governments, and it's also true at the level of families and intimate relationships, which is where I want to start the series of stories we'll be telling. Today, obedience. My name is Rima Zaman. I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, 
1983, and um, I was born as the eldest child in an arranged marriage between my parents. And when I was two years old, my father started doing his doctorate in the United States, and so we moved to Hawaii for four years. And then after that, my father got his posting in Thailand, and that's where we we went and we started living in Thailand in 1989. Her father worked as a diplomat. He was definitely the the authority in our house, where um, we had a very traditional household in that sense, where we um, kind of just, you know, orbited around him. And so I was very conscious of making him happy. I grew up trained to be Little Miss Perfect. You know, I'm a diplomat's daughter. Um, I'm almost polite to an insufferable degree. Uh, we were groomed to become young leaders and socialites and um, always to honor social decorum and rules. I remember when I was a little girl, uh, you know, in England they have a saying called stiff upper lip. And I remember, you know, if I would come home excited to tell a story about something that had happened at school, and my father would say, you know, stiff upper lip. He said it so often that the family started to use a shorthand version, where stiff upper lip became silip. Silip, silip. That was our abbreviated version of it. In order to get me to rein in my excitement and animation and to speak in a ladylike manner. And I uh, was taught to do this ever since I was a child. You know, it's interesting, when I became an actress, uh, I had so many teachers and professors and coaches say, just loosen up a little, just speak more colloquially. And the thing is, this is my authentic voice. I just was raised and groomed and trained to speak like this. You know, we're raised with a promise by society. Society tells us, put your trust and your voice and surrender your voice to authority leaders. You can trust them. They will take care of you. That's what I was taught. Not explicitly, but definitely implicitly. She remembers one incident after she'd graduated college and was living in New York. She was doing a lot of auditions and babysitting to make ends meet. And one day, an actor she knows asks her out on a date. And so anyway, I was out on this date with this man who from the get-go intimidated me and it only stoked my attraction to him. We had gone up for dinner and drinks and um, I invited him back to my apartment and, you know, we he kissed me and I tried to say goodbye to him and I said, thank you for your date and good night, you have to go now. And he kissed me again And he pushed me against the door, and he pushed me against the wall, and he kept on getting more aggressive, and he kept on saying, no, I'm not going to leave. And that's when all the attraction bled out of me, and it was just fear. And I kept on saying, no, you have to leave, you have to leave. And then he assaulted me. He raped me, 
And um, all I kept on saying during the entire thing was no, no. And he just disregarded my voice. And I remember thinking during the rape that, um, again, like how unsurprising this was. She told us she thought of all the other times her voice or her words had been ignored, and that immediately after, she had this sense of becoming a statistic, of becoming one of many women forced to have sex against their will. Years later, she's acting and doing some modeling work when she meets a man and falls in love. When I met him, I was just dazzled by his charm. He was physically gorgeous, and he um, was very protective and territorial in a way that I had been taught to see as sexy. He loved me with a madness, and I thought that was exactly what every woman should aspire for. Just you want to be partnered with someone who pesters you with questions and asks you about your schedule because it's all under the guise of love. What he would say to me is, well, baby, I love you, so I need to know your whole schedule. Baby, I love you, so call me when you get there. Call me when you leave. Baby, I love you, I just hate it when you spend so much time. And baby, I love you, so I need to know how you're using your money. And it just became part of the language of our our relationship. And by language, I mean just the, the everyday landscape, like not just not only the way that we spoke to each other and interacted, but it became the roles we took on. He was the temperamental, um, suave, charming dragon, and I was supposed to be his soothing, calming, you know, maiden-waiting. And, uh, and he would say, I'm the fire and you're the water. We'll be back after this break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now, back to Rima. Her new boyfriend seemed eager to do anything he could to show just how committed he was to her. They'd only been dating for a few months, but things were getting serious. He turned to me one day and said, you know, what if we get married? And what if I am the one who sponsors your green card? So you won't be in this limbo constantly. And actually, I think it's really romantic if I'm the reason that you're in this country. And I thought it was so romantic too. And lo and behold, that became a gambling chip that he would hold over me. 
any time I would misbehave in his eyes. And misbehavior, by the way, meant if I spoke up too firmly against one of his ideas or one of his claims about, I don't know, like politics or a movie or something, um, if I didn't dress according to what he deemed was uh, appropriate attire for a woman. For example, there was this time where he picked her up at the train station one evening. He picked me up after I had a full day of auditions, so naturally I had some makeup on. And he picked me up, and instantly I could tell that the energy in the car shifted and that he was angry with me. And um, he turned to me and he said, why do you have to wear your makeup like that? And it makes you look dumb. And I was, you know, surprised to hear it, but I didn't speak back to him. All I said was, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's that was like my mantra. And, um, and he uh, hit the dashboard and uh, the glove compartment opened up and he got out a handful of takeout napkins and he just wiped them over my lips and my cheeks and my eyes and trying to dim down the color. Rima remembers thinking right away that it was her fault he'd reacted like that and it was on her to calm him down. And I had been affirmed for being able to, quote-unquote, have this magical touch over him. Not only did I think this was my responsibility, if I failed to calm him down, or if he failed to have a good day, I felt shame. And I felt shame towards all of the things that were, you know, um, breaking down in our marriage. And I took it on as my personal failure. And that enabled me to stay in the relationship for as long as I did. After more than a year of this, Rima says she realized something. Abusers thrive on three things. Anger, fear, and the feeling of dominance. And abusers always need someone to abuse. And so, rather than apologize or take responsibility for his moods, she decided to give him as little of her emotions and attention as possible. So I decided to starve him of the things he was drawing from me. I refused to give him my anger. I refused to give him my fear. And I refused to feel intimidated in any way. When he got angry, she still wouldn't push back. But she also wouldn't apologize she basically disengaged. At first, he was furious, until eventually he seemed to get bored of her and turned his attention elsewhere. Then one day, Rima was at a babysitting job, and her phone rang. And it was my then-husband, and I picked it up. And he said, hey, baby, can you talk for a little while? I said, yeah, sure, I have a few minutes. What is it? And he said, don't come home. And I said, why? Is it the septic tank again? Because <laughs> we had been having problems with our septic tank. And he said, no, I just don't feel like doing this anymore. I just said, okay. And I filled with this huge wave of gratitude because I was finally free. And uh, he said, yeah, so I'll talk to you when I talk to you. And he hung up. 
and the call lasted less than three minutes. In total, Rima was with her ex-husband for two years. And that night, when he told her not to come home ever again, all she had were the clothes she was wearing and about $60 in cash. But the most surprising thing is, after that, he actually left her alone. Rima thinks she got lucky. She says her ex had already started seeing someone else, so he had them to focus on. I just want to take a moment to underscore that the way things ended, this is not how it goes for many people trying to get out of abusive relationships. Organisations like the National Domestic Violence Hotline have resources to help people safely exit an abusive relationship precisely because of how hard and dangerous it can be. I just wanted to be free. And it was the first time in my life that I was able to live by myself when I wasn't living in my father's home or with roommates or with a husband. And it was the first experience of just living with my own voice, which most women, many women, do not ever have a chance to do that. It's very rare that we have the opportunity to sit in a quiet room of one's own, to listen to the words of one's own voice, and to make decisions every day based precisely on what we feel like doing. I got to, I started to unpack the trauma of conflating love with fear and being taught that that is actually what love is supposed to be like. And I started unpacking all of that and releasing all of that. She began to focus more on her writing, which she had increasingly turned to during the course of the marriage as a way of bearing witness to the ways her husband attempted to control her and demand obedience. And slowly I started learning that I enjoyed the company of my own writing much more than I enjoyed auditioning or begging for someone's approval in a professional setting. So she left acting, moved across the country, and dedicated herself to building a career as a writer. We just think that our body is supposed to be living in pain. You know what I mean? It's like, you may have this undiagnosed illness that you're carrying around in your body and you're in perpetual pain, but people keep on telling you, oh no, I mean, it's, it's okay, it's just a natural part of a normal life. And I think that's what happens with authoritarianism. We're just told in various ways, overtly and subvertly, that this pervasive illness is just part of the natural fabric of life. And we need to just be quiet about this pain. And um, what I have learned through all of this is that being told to be quiet about it is precisely why I need to speak up. Two years ago, Rima published a memoir about her experiences called I Am Yours. The thing that kept me alive and grew my strength was my voice on the page. And the words that started appearing on the page. And 
I thought, you know, if it has done something nourishing for me, if I could just pass that on to one other victim of abuse, one other survivor, that would be a job well done. And that's the thing I want to be remembered for, not for being Little Miss Perfect or a dutiful daughter or wife. Which brings us almost full circle back to the conversation I'd had with Amanda Taub. The entire series (laughs) that we're putting together is called Strongman. Hmm. And we named it Strongman because we wanted to showcase that the way people experience oppression happens not just at the hands of state leaders, but also at the hands of people they may know much more intimately, and that there are potentially strong men everywhere. What what do you think of this? Um, I think that's absolutely right, and I think it gets at something which is so important and so easy to lose in a lot of kind of day-to-day news coverage, which is the role of power that so often we report stories, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this as well, um, just in a sort of, and then this happened, and then this happened, then this happened, when the kind of, the air that everyone's breathing is that one person was so much more powerful than the other, um, and how much that matters, and how much it can lead to these, you know, incredibly controlling, sometimes even abusive or exploitative relationships um, at all levels. Once we recognize it in more kind of individual, personal levels of society, it becomes easier to understand as well how this happens at the nationwide level and why people support it. This is exactly what we'll be looking at across the series. Each episode is a single story narrated by a writer or journalist from a different part of the world, highlighting one of those mechanisms people use to control others. Because we want to know, why exactly does this happen? What does it say about us as individuals and as societies? And how might we do things differently? Next time on Strongman. It was all for the party. The more blood we shed, the more we made it into history, and the closer the revolution was. Strongman is a production of Vice News. It's hosted by me, Hint Hassan. Stephanie Kariuki is our senior producer. Our producers are Peter Langstanson and Pulavi Kotamasu. Our associate producer is Sam Egan. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandi. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kate Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Michelle Harris for fact-checking. Special thanks to Rima Zaman and to Amanda Taub. For resources on domestic violence, call the National Domestic Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.